Good morning. And for this morning, comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. Before I read that, I want to make mention of our Buford Leadership Training Program. It was announced last Sunday, and email has gone out, and it's been in the bulletin that we are doing registration for that program. As of this morning, we have 18 that have registered out of a group of probably over 100 that we should have in that. We usually have 60 or 70, so parents, students, get signed up so we know that you want to participate. We're going to do everything we can to start having events and workshops as soon as possible. Um, we're going to be studying the book of Hebrews, much as Ben is going to be in, on the Wednesday night classes. Um, so that'll be a good study for us. Um, working towards convention in April. Um, you don't have to go to convention. There's lots of things you can do otherwise. This is for kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. So go on the web, on church website, scroll down to ministries, scroll down to Buford Leadership Training. All the information's there. If you have questions, scroll way down. You'll find Chase's face and my face. You can punch one of us in the face and send us an email. And we'll answer any questions that you have. So please think about that and be getting registered so we can get moving on that for this year. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the ex exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt like this would be a good time for Jesus to come back? I, I had one of those moments in my first year of youth ministry. That's my fault. That's my fault. That's my fault. The second Devo I did as a youth minister down in Pensacola, we were at the preacher's house that night. The youth group was there. I, of course, was there. The preacher was there. The youth deacon was there. And I had this plan for the Devo. I have seriously messed this microphone up. I'm going to drive everybody crazy. I had this plan for the Devo. <laughs> what am I doing now? I was going to show a clip from the very end of the movie Schindler's List. Kevin's going to kill me. Hold on one second. All right, we'll try that now. 
This is, I was going to show a clip from the end of the movie Schindler's List. Now, towards the end of the movie, there's this moment, if you've seen it, where Oscar Schindler is, is having to flee. He saved all of these Jews in the midst of the, the Holocaust, in the midst of World War II, and he saved all these individuals. But now, because he is technically aligned with the Nazi party, he has to flee. And as he's fleeing, he's walking out of his factory where all of these Jewish people who he employed are watching him, and they're sad that he's leaving. And, and he looks around, and he sees his car, and he says, you know what? I could have saved 10 more people if I sold that car. He looks at, at a, a, a pin on his jacket that's made out of gold, and he, and he says, I could have saved one more person if I would have sold this. And all he's doing is recounting people he could have saved if he would have just made greater sacrifice. And it is a great illustration of the mindset a Christian should have towards soul-saving. And I was going to show this clip and, and, and make application to our youth group. But we got to the preacher's house, and his DVD player, for you that don't know what a DVD player is, that's how you used to watch movies. He had this DVD player, but he didn't have the remote control. Now, I had, I had tested this at home. I had worked it out. I knew exactly which scene I would have to select. I, I, I knew exactly how to get to that one scene and that one scene only because I never saw Schindler's List in its entirety unedited growing up. I saw it at school in a very edited version because there are some scenes involving the concentration camps especially that are, are not appropriate for young people. And so now here I am, my whole Devo revolves around seeing this scene, and there's no remote control for me to do scene select with. My only option was to put the movie in, go to the DVD player, and there are some of you who are not going to know what this is because you've never seen a DVD player, uh, but you, you have this option on the DVD player where you can hit scene skip, and it skips to the first, first few seconds of every scene as you go along. And so without thinking, I pop in the DVD and I start hitting scene, skip, scene, skip, scene, skip, scene, skip, trying to get towards the end of the movie where my scene is. I knew exactly what scene it was. But the problem is, as I'm hitting scene, skip, I did not realize that the start of one scene was just going to show an undressed woman on the television. So here I am in my second Devo I'm ever doing as a youth minister at the preacher's house with the youth deacon present, and I just showed an undressed woman to the entire youth group. And right then and there, in the midst of that embarrassment, I thought this would be a good time for Jesus to come back. <laughs> but in all seriousness, in, in all seriousness, we shouldn't want Jesus to come back just to alleviate our own embarrassment or to get us out of uncomfortable situations. We should want Jesus to come back because we want to get out of this unrighteous, immoral, complicated, fallen world. And we want to go to our home, our eternal home. And let me ask you this. Has 2020 made you want Jesus to come back? It has me, with the exception of, of one little three-week-old at home. But 2020 has made me time and time again think to myself, I want Jesus to come back so I can get out of this. And you know, that poses a question that many in Scripture uh, thought to themselves. Time and time again, you can journey through Scripture and see people ask, How long, O Lord? David asked this in Psalm chapter 35 and verse 17. He said, How long, O Lord, will you look on? He was waiting for God's intervention in a matter. How long, O oh Lord? 
And that desperate feeling of God's intervention, that desperate desire for God's intervention, is a reminder of the fact that sometimes God makes us wait. Look again at our text for today, Philippians chapter 3. As we continue this study uh, called Finding Joy in the Journey, we're going to today examine the fact that there is joy in waiting. Look at Philippians 3 and verse 20, and, and notice in particular what Paul says here. He, re, he, he, he identifies our citizenship in heaven. And he said, from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to be subject all, even to subject all things to himself. Paul says we're waiting on something. We're waiting on Christ to return. We're, we're waiting on Christ to transform us. We're waiting on our time to go to heaven. And sometimes the waiting process presents the greatest challenge to our faith. So today I want us to talk about waiting. And I want us to see how there is actually joy in waiting. But first we have to acknowledge a couple things. First, we need to acknowledge that we suffer from weight loss. The reality is that we want everything to be fast. We want everything to be immediate. We want everything to happen on our timetable. We want our food fast. So we have fast food restaurants, we have microwaves, we have instant meals. We want our communications fast. So that's why we have smartphones with email, text messaging, and social media apps. We want things to happen fast. And we're not alone in this struggle. There are many heroes in the Bible, many biblical characters that struggled with waiting, just like you and I do. Think about Abraham. He struggled with wait when he, had, when he and Sarah decided to uh, utilize Hagar as a surrogate mother. They got tired of waiting on God's timetable for their son to arrive, so they decided to take matters into their own hands. Think about Absalom, the son of David. He couldn't wait to be king. So instead of waiting on his father David to abdicate, abdicate the throne, either by um, death or resignation, he decided to take the throne from him. Think about the prodigal son. He couldn't wait to get that money. He demanded his inheritance before his father was even deceased because he wanted it now. Those characters in Scripture are, are just a microcosm of us. They show us that we have a weight problem. We've all been there before in that moment where you're waiting on God's timetable. Maybe, maybe you're in that moment right now, waiting. Maybe you're wondering, Lord, when will you lead me to the next phase of my career? When will you lead me to a job that I can enjoy? When will... You open up an opportunity for a position that can provide the income that my family really needs. Maybe you're wondering, Lord, when will you lead me to the person that I can spend the rest of my life with? When will I not be single anymore? When will I find someone to marry? Maybe you're wondering, Lord, when will I be able to have kids? When will you bless us with children? When will we be able to become parents? Maybe you're wondering, Lord, when will the pain go away? When will I be well again? When will I not have to see a doctor again? 
Or, Lord, when will the grief subside? When will the memories not hurt so much? Or, or, Lord, when will I get past this storm? When will I get through this difficult experience that I'm enduring right now? When will I get past this phase of life that's challenging every fiber of my being? I'm certain that we've all been in the win stage before. And many of us are in it right now. And we find ourselves wondering what God's timetable is. And sometimes it's harder to accept God's answer to the question of when than it is to accept his answer to the questions of what or how or why. Here's what we also need to know. Not only do we suffer from weight loss, but God specializes in weight gain. I should have chose, I meant to put that on a black background. I apologize. God specializes in weight gain. I have a picture of the air traffic control tower down at the Hartsville-Jackson Airport. I often have to remind myself that God operates much like an air traffic controller. Think about it this way. An air traffic controller is perched up in that tower. You never see him. You never meet him. You have no interaction with him. But he's up there observing flight paths, communicating with pilots, and telling planes when they can take off and when they can land. He's the guy you never see, but is often the source of your frustration when you're stuck waiting on the tarmac. See, it's his job to direct traffic. It's his job to keep everyone safe. It's his job to make things run smoothly. And sometimes, in order to accomplish those things, he has to make you wait. God is perched, if you will, in heaven. And he's observing the paths of our lives. He's communicating with us through his word. And he's trying to maneuver us in the direction of his will. At times, he will give the go-ahead signal for us to move forward. And at times, he will ground everything. It's his job to direct traffic. It's his job to keep everyone safe. It's his job to make things run smoothly. And sometimes in order to accomplish those objectives, he has to make you wait. See, Scripture asserts that God uses waiting to fulfill his purposes. One of those purposes is to develop our character. All throughout the Bible, God demonstrated the effectiveness of the waiting room when it comes to character development. I mentioned Abraham earlier. Abraham became a better man by waiting for Isaac to the point that he could put Isaac on an altar when asked to. Joseph became a better equipped ruler over Egypt because of what he endured and what he learned while waiting in prison. Hannah reached the point in her waiting that she was willing to dedicate any child God gave her into his service. David wrote some of the best psalms when he was out there living in caves, waiting for his turn to be king. And Paul learned to be content, as will be mentioned in the fourth chapter of Philippians. He learned to be content in all situations because he experienced those times of want while sitting in prison. The point is that waiting is beneficial for us, and therefore we should never waste a good wait. Instead of saying, why, God? Maybe we should be praying, what, God, do you want me to learn while I wait? 
because waiting can be the avenue through which God develops our character. But God also uses waiting to deepen our faith because waiting demonstrates trust. When you wait, you're showing that you're not in control and you trust the one who is. I think that's the purpose of some of David's psalms. He, he writes about waiting in several of his psalms, which are recorded up here on the screen. He'll say in Psalm 25 and verse 5, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. In Psalm 27 and verse 14, David said, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 37 and verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 38, 15, For you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Psalm 40 and verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. Psalm 62 and verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. David understood waiting. And all throughout his writings, he encourages people to practice waiting. See, in all of these passages, David seems to be saying that waiting is how we show God that we trust Him. Thus, waiting is, is the greatest trust fall ever de devised because it has the ability to deepen our faith in God like nothing else. So the key to understanding why we wait is to realize that God is sovereign. And therefore, He doesn't have to make us wait. But sometimes he chooses to make us wait because what he is doing in us during the wait is just as important as what we are waiting for. But how can we find joy in waiting? Let's turn our attention back to Philippians chapter 3 now. Because there are two basic things that I think Paul says one must do to find joy in waiting. And you'll see those two things in verses 13 and 14 of Philippians chapter 3. Look at what Paul said there again. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Two things I want you to notice in this particular text that contribute to having joy in waiting. In order to have joy in waiting, you must first forget the past. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind. What is Paul referring to? What is Paul saying we should forget? Well, based on what we know about Paul, both in this letter and in his other writings, I think we can conclude that there are two primary things he intentionally forgot. I think first he forgot his sins. Oh, now don't get me wrong. Forgetting doesn't mean erasing from memory. If we could erase the memory of our sins, how much more happy would our lives be? If you could never remember what you did wrong and yet still learn from it and, and yet still not return to it, wouldn't that be the ideal situation? We know that God is a great forgetter, that he has the ability that when he forgives... He forgets also. Scripture declares that on multiple occasions. We don't do that, though. We have a memory that retains the knowledge of those sins. 
So forgetting is not erasing from memory, but forgetting is letting go. See, for a great many of us, when it comes to forgiveness, we have no problem forgiving others, and we have no problem with God forgiving us. Where we struggle is with forgiving ourselves, and we hold on to guilt like excess baggage. And we find ourselves unable to let go of something we didn't in our past. And what I find so very interesting is that Paul may have struggled with that too. Some have contended that Paul's thorn in the flesh, which is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, that his thorn in the flesh was the guilt he felt over persecuting the church. Think about this. Paul often referred to himself as the chief of sinners. That's a statement that appears in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul struggled with his past sins. Whether or not it was his thorn in the flesh, it's quite evident that Paul looked at himself and thought poorly of himself because of something in his past. For Paul, who we often refer to or look at as one of the greatest Christians ever, absolutely probably the greatest missionary ever, absolutely and probably don't go together, by the way. We admire Paul. We read his letters and wish we could, uh, could speak and think and act like Paul. And yet here's Paul saying, I'm the worst of the worst. Paul struggled with forgiving himself to some degree. And yet Paul is also the guy who's going to write these words in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul knew that his sins were removed Paul knew that he was no longer enslaved to sin. Paul knew that he was a new creation, but he still struggled with remembering what he had done. And here, as he speaks about waiting, as he speaks about awaiting Christ's return, the first thing he says he has to do is forget the past. He's got to forget that baggage that he's holding on to. And right now, some of you are holding on to that baggage. Right now, some of us in this congregation, some of us are, are not letting go of our past and unwilling to see ourselves as a new creation in Christ. Some of us are enslaved to our sin, not because we're continuing to engage in it, but because we're refusing to forgive ourselves. But if God, who is holy and righteous and good, can forgive us of our sins so that he doesn't hold on to them anymore, then shouldn't you and I be able to do the same? Not because we're equal with God, but because we're inferior to him. And if his sovereignty and superiority, he's willing to do that, we should be willing to do that to ourselves. So the first thing I think Paul forgets is his sins. The second thing he forgets is his successes. You know, Paul may have struggled with forgetting his sins, but he never struggled with forgetting his successes. Last week, in verses uh, 5 and 6 of Philippians chapter 3, we discussed Paul's spiritual resume. He identified some of his spiritual heritage and some of his spiritual achievements just earlier in this very chapter. And then he said that he counted those things as rubbish when they, when they were compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So the point is, Paul was willing to forget his perceived successes before he knew Christ, but Really, the question we've got to ask is, would he be as willing to forget his successes 
for Christ. I find it very interesting that Paul will list his achievements before he was converted, right here in Philippians chapter 3, but never, never after he became a Christian did he write a list of his successes. You're not going to journey through the New Testament and find Paul outlining how many churches he planted or how many people he baptized or how many special places he preached or how many letters he wrote. And I think the reason Paul never did that is because he understood that yesterday's successes really meant nothing today. Paul never rested on his laurels. Paul never looked at his achievements and said, I've done enough. Paul never retired spiritually, as Ben was talking about just a couple of weeks ago up here. Paul recognized that his job wasn't to look back on the past and be happy with his past. His job was to be active in the present. For you and I, there are people in this congregation, there are people in the body of Christ who simply look back on what they did, who simply boast in what they did in the past and don't concern themselves with what they're doing in the present. People who are retiring spiritually. I've done my part as a Bible class teacher. I've done my part as a ministry leader. I've done my part in, 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 in evangelism. I've done my part in serving others. I've done my part. It's time for somebody else to pick up the mantle and do it. Do you realize that nowhere in Scripture is such a mentality spoken of? Being a mentor, yes. But being a mentor means working alongside, not turning over the work. Paul was Timothy's mentor. He didn't say, all right, Timothy, I'm done. I'm retiring from this whole evangelism thing. You're taking over now. No. He equipped Timothy and worked alongside Timothy. Just read the New Testament letters. Read the first couple of verses of every Pauline letter in the New Testament, and at least half of those are going to have Timothy's name with them. Because Paul didn't retire from doing the work of the kingdom. Paul consistently did the work because he didn't let yesterday's success determine tomorrow's success. So Paul says, if I'm going to have joy in waiting, I've got to forget my sins, but I've also got to forget my successes. I can't rest on the past. I've got to work today just like I worked yesterday because that's what the kingdom deserves out of us. So when Paul said that he forgets what lies behind, I think we should learn from him that the only way to have joy in waiting is by forgetting anything from the past that would impede our progress today whether that be past mistakes or past successes. I'm reminded of a conversation former President Ronald Reagan had with an Air Force One pilot on one occasion. The president asked the pilot, why do you always try to land so close to the start of the runway? And the pilot said, Mr. President, all pilots know that the runway behind you is of no value. So you've got to forget the past because it's of no value to you today. God wants us to look at what's ahead, not at what's behind. And as one preacher said, you can't rewrite the past, but you can be released from it. And I think that's the point Paul's trying to make as he says that he forgets what lies behind. But that's not the only thing Paul said there in verses 13 and 14 of Philippians chapter 3. 
He said he forgets the past, but he also said that he focuses on the goal. One thing I do, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He strains forward. He presses on toward the goal. That language of straining and pressing is the language of intentional, unmitigated, focused effort. What I find so interesting in this passage is that Paul prefaced his comments about forgetting and focusing by first saying, one thing I do. He says, one thing I do. But then he rattles off two things. Kind of like a preacher, right? One more thing, and then rattles off a whole bunch of others. It sounds like there's more than one thing here, but in reality, there really is only one thing. Focus. Because the process of forgetting is just an automatic component of the process of focusing. So what Paul is ultimately saying is that I don't get distracted by all these other pursuits. I don't get sidetracked by all these other agendas. I, don't, I keep my focus on the one thing and one thing only. One thing I do, not 20 things I do, one thing I do. That's focus. And he's pressing on. He's straining forward. He's focused. One preacher pointed out that one of the great diseases in the church today is fragmentosis. That is being distracted by so many competing agendas that the one thing that really matters doesn't get our best energy or our best focus. For many of us, our problem is that we start the race in this Christian life, but then we get distracted. We get distracted by the crowd out there watching, or we get distracted by the other runners, or we get distracted by the clock. And before you know it, you're running the race, but before you know it, you get distracted by all these things, and the next thing that happens is you slow down, or you step out of your lane and get disqualified. And Paul's saying that the, 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 in, order to be, uh, in order to obtain the goal that's awaiting us, in order to be ready for that day when the waiting is over, you've got to be focused. You've got to press on. You've got to strive forward, strive ahead. And I think what Paul is trying to say is that his focus and our focus has to be regulated. At the end of his life, you can read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. You can read that he was indeed that focused. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. See, the question or the issue that we have to face is that for some of us, we're just not focused. At least not on the most important thing. We're focused on a great many things, but all too often, heaven is not our ultimate focus. And when you're not focused on heaven, guess what? You get sidetracked. When heaven's not your primary focus, it's very easy for you to slow down, spiritually speaking. 
It's very easy for you to get distracted, spiritually speaking. Honestly, right now, what is the focus of your life? For some of you, it's just survival right now, isn't it? With the whole pandemic going on, our primary focus is to not get it. For others of us, we're tired of COVID. And so for some of us, we're thinking my greatest focus now is to start living again, to stop acting like I've got to stay cooped up in this house. For some of us, the focus is just to get a good night's sleep for a few days. What is your focus? Is your true focus on what really matters, what has eternal ramifications, or is your focus on something that just has some temporary ramifications? Because if you want to be ready for when Christ comes back, the one thing you've got to do while you wait is be focused on the goal. I'm not one who understands horse racing that well. But many contend that the greatest achievement of any sporting event of all time occurred in 1973 when Secretariat won the Triple Crown, but more importantly, when Secretariat ran at the Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness prior to arriving at the Belmont Stakes. And the Triple Crown is an award of winning all three races in a single year. Only 13 horses in 100 years have accomplished that. It's a rare feat in that particular sporting event. Secretariat went on to win the Belmont Stakes by 31 lengths. Now, if you're like me, that means absolutely nothing to you. But as I understand it, a length is comparable to the length of a horse. And that was the largest victory, if I'm correct, there ever was at that race. Here's what's more fascinating, though. Not the distance by which he won, but they went back and calculated his speed. He was running at close to 50 miles an hour during this race. But what was really fascinating is that every quarter-mile section of the race, he got faster. Now, I don't know if you've ever really done any competitive running, it's been a long time since I have. But usually in a race, no matter what the distance is, you're faster in the early stages than you are in the late stages. Usually. Especially in thoroughbred racing. This was absolutely unique that he got faster the further he went on the course. It led one of the uh, announcers of the event to, to say that if he went any further, his heart would burst because he kept speeding up. And I find that so fascinating that this horse, as he got closer to the finish line, he got faster and faster and faster. And here's the takeaway for me. Shouldn't that be how I live my life for Christ? That after each and every day, I'm wanting to go faster and faster and faster towards heaven. That I'm more and more eager to get to that finish line that I'm not distracted by everything else going on around me and I'm not worried about all the things going on in this world because my focus is on the finish. And so in the midst of all my waiting, I push harder. I strive ahead. I press on. You see, I think that's what Paul is really talking about here. 
because he's so focused on the goal that he pursues it with greater intensity every day. That's what we've got to do if we want to experience joy in waiting. Today, you may be in the midst of the wait room. You may be struggling with something that you are just ready to be over. You may be wondering, God, how long till this comes to an end? You want to have joy in the midst of that. Start by forgetting what's behind and then focus on the finish line. Right now, there are some in here today who need to forget what's behind them by entering the waters of baptism so those sins can be washed away. If you've never taken that step, you really can't let go yet. Maybe today that's where you need to start is by forgetting your sins through the waters of baptism, by confessing Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God and repenting of those sins and then submitting to those waters. Maybe today you're holding on to some guilt that you really need to let go of. Maybe you need to come today and let us pray with you and pray for you about that struggle and turn your guilt over to God. Maybe there are some of you today who just aren't focused, who don't have your eyes set on the right thing. It's time to turn your heart back to God, eliminate the distractions, and focus solely on the finish line, pushing for it harder and harder every day. I don't know what your specific need is, but I know that our Father has an answer for it. And through the body of Christ, He's given us an avenue that we can help address those needs and those requests. And so if you need to respond to His invitations today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Those who live for Jesus, I will be yours.